This episode is sponsored by Agent CRM. If you're in sales and tired of paying three, four, or five different companies for your email, CRM, funnels, phone, follow-up automation, check out Agent CRM. It's an all-in-one tool that combines all that you need to reach out, nurture, and close your clients. They've got weekly support calls so you can get up and running in no time. Get a free 14-day trial by going to the link below in the show notes. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is attorney Dan Wynn with the Intentional Entrepreneur Podcast. I have a very special guest with me today. He is an admitted industry contrarian who's very wary and often critical uh, about conventional financial wisdom. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Wealth Defense Financial Advisors, which focuses on the unique needs of go- and goals of business owners, high-income f- professionals, upward mobile families, real estate investors, and those entering or already inside retirement. I do want to welcome to the show, Barry Rutten. Hey, Dan, great to be here. And it is pronounced Rutten, just just like my uh, mom told me with when you have uh, one, one, of, one vowel and two consonants, it's a short so it's like rutten like button, but that's okay. Oh, my apologies. And no problem. It, 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 English is actually a very hard language. If you if you think about all these, even for all people these, who are raised on English, Asia, Asia, yes, yes. I I grew up and and you know uh, we're our, our sons are younger and these rules is and to me yeah. is like if it sounds right then it's right to me. I don't know all these rules, but uh, yeah. thank you for the thank you for the correction. No um, so. Uh, you know, you're based out of Seattle. You've been doing this for over 35 years. And we do have a very, um, very cool topic today for business owners and the four sneaky threats to financial security for business owners. Before we kind of get into all of that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into what you're doing today? Sure. Um, I think like a lot of people when I was in high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, Everybody said I had a big mouth, which was accurate. Um, And so it was uh, suggested that uh, after college, you know, I uh, uh, pursue law school, which was kind of, you know, always sort of the plan. Like I kind of had that vision. I think it's even in my high school yearbook, you know, good luck in law school. You'll do great. You know, that was everybody was like, I was always very verbal. And um, uh, so, but when I actually got to law school, I did, I did the work and I did the, the LSATs and got there. And I can so clearly remember, like, why am I here? Like, all the other kids were, like, so into it. And they have these groups with, you know, they were doing their briefs and study groups. And I was just like, I want to go to the beach and play volleyball. I was in I was the University of San Diego School of Law, which was probably a mistake. Oh. <laughs> I should have gone to, like, the University of Minnesota. So where it was, like, so cold and miserable, I actually stayed in the library and studied, you know. Um, so actually after a few months, I really realized that this is just, was not the right fit for me. And I, I made an intentional decision because I was on a professional career track. I didn't want to, um, get off of that, but I thought, what do I really want to do? And I went to the undergraduate library at the university of San Diego and they had like professional journals from every, every industry. And I just started at the A's and just worked my way through. And I came across, the Journal of Financial Planning, and I'm flipping through a bunch of uh, issues, and it was sort of a lightning bolt moment. Like, wow, this this is actually what I want. This has clients, but positive interactions and positive outcomes. Law, as you know, can be kind of negative and constraining. And um, now, at the time, you know, law school is very much about like criminal and civil law. 
I wish there was a couple of courses like being the lawyer for a Hollywood starlet or <laughs> being being the lawyer for a highly paid professional athlete. I might have stayed because uh, that's a pretty good gig, uh, but I didn't know that then. So, um, so I actually chose to be in financial planning. And because I've always treated as a uh, as a profession, I've tried to both um, conduct myself, educate myself, and interact with my clients in that very professional fiduciary kind of role. Um, that you know, I'm I'm probably more nervous about their out outcome than they are. Uh, so we really want to use a lot of you know, do care, and they throw around the term fiduciary. I think, um, and. I always think like if you need to be regulated, if somebody needs to tell you to do things the right way, you're probably doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I've always come at it from the standpoint of trying to treat it as if it was my money with their life. Meaning if I knew everything about them, like they're an expert on them, right? So mm -hmm. if I say everything they know about them and come out with everything I know about what's possible, meaning the mistakes to avoid and the things to achieve, and we could graph those two things together you're essentially acting in your own best self-interest, right? So I'm trying to act not just for their best self-interest, but as if I was them in their, you know, unique situation. So um, when I hear 35 years, it sounds it's really old. Um, but, you know, we're, we're going through a, uh, or either in or about to enter a recession. You know, I've been through multiple market crashes and multiple mm -hmm. interest rate cycles and multiple boom and bust cycles. And so I think there's some perspective there. Mm -hmm. uh, that maybe somebody who you know got into this last week, uh, you know, or last year, hasn't seen. Uh, but I love the profession. I love the impact that we can have uh, on people's lives. I'm way too squeamish to be a doctor, and so uh, this is this is what I do to help people. I don't even like the sign of my own blood, let alone the sight of anybody <laughs> else. So, yeah, I mean, uh, kudos to you for um, you, you use the word intentional, right? Because I, I know. Um, for a lot of people, whether it's law school or other things, they kind of, you know, their parents made them go mm -hmm. or, you know, they don't know what else to do. And now they're stuck in a job they don't like. So, you know, good for you on finding out early on relatively to, you know, everyone's education is like, Hey, I don't want to do this, which is important. Yeah. And then this is what I want to do. My mom um, was, my mom was devastated. Like, she <laughs> had, I think she had stationery printed that said my son, the lawyer. Uh, and so she had, she, she took years to get over. She kept trying to nudge me back. You could always go back and she would send me things. And I think at one point it got to the point where she was sending me like, earn your law degree at night matchbook covers, you know? <laughs> uh, but eventually she decided that maybe I'd made the right choice. <laughs> all right. All right. So, you know, um, both, uh, you know, a majority of our, both our clientele is, is business owners and you have, this particular um, uh, experience with um, uh, basically security threat or financial threats to to business owners. So, you know, um, you you kind of broken them down to four different areas, and um, let's start with the first one: is the 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 sneaky threat to financial security for business owners. Yeah, I think you know it's it's sort of like sneaky in the sense that they're hiding in plain sight. These are not unknown; it's just simply that in the world of entrepreneurialism and in, in the world of business ownership, you have so, you know, I, I have so much respect for entrepreneurs and business owners. They are the ultimate risk takers in our society, in our economy. And they wear so many hats that you're so busy trying to, you know, 
you know, market and sell and manage and lead and deal with everything that it's easy to say, well, I'll deal with this when I get time, which is not going to happen because you're not going to get the time. So part of the game is to just kind of try to press pause and say, okay, how do I take some of these risks off the table that can really hurt me in ways that I may not even really grasp. So let me kind of get into the first one. Um, The first one is not valuing your business. And I don't mean like respecting your business. I mean, not actually identifying a value and a method of valuing your business because a business often represents the majority of someone's uh, assets and net worth. And there's always this, well, you know, if I had to sell it for whatever reason, you know, I, you know, I think I could get this, or I think I could get that, or if I want to, uh, you know, cash out one day, you know, I'll sell my business. And that's, that's like, that's the extent of it. It's like, yeah, I think, I think this is something I could sell. And it's critical, even if you're a solopreneur, uh, to understand the value of the business and what goes into improving the value of the business. So even if you're 35 and have no intention of selling the business for 30 years, running your business as if you were going to sell it. And if you were going to pay attention to the metrics that a future purchaser would value in deciding whether it's your business or the other guys. Uh, and within your space, within your industry, there is usually a, uh, a range of business valuations, a multiple, if you will, like I'll sell for two times cash flow in industry A, but in industry B, it may be five times. But within any of those industries, it's a range, right? It could be, well, the low-end business sells for two, but the really great business sells for four times. Well, that's a lot of money usually. And you can't fix this at the end. Like you can't fix it a week before you want to sell it. And Mm -hmm. so what we recommend for business owners is that every few years, certainly do it initially. And then every few years, have the business professionally valued. It's a service we provide. Mm -hmm. You can get it from other people, but based on your kind of business, is it a manufacturing business? Is it a services business? Uh, is it is it a sales business? What is the kind of business? So there's usually a model and a methodology for valuing that kind of business. And then and then coming up with a, how did we arrive at that value? What technique? There's, there's a half a dozen different business valuation calculation methodologies. We need to match that correct one to your business and then have that updated periodically. Mm-hmm. If you have business partners, one or more, the business valuation becomes critical in addressing the fact that things can and will change. And you could be put in a position where you have what's called a dissolution event. And I know, Dan, I'm looking at you and I, I know you know everything I'm saying. So I'm trying to speak to your audience instead of like, well, Dan already knows this. Um, so you can have a dissolution event. This could be a death, a divorce, a disability, uh, a forced retirement, a desired retirement. I just want to get out uh, a bankruptcy. The question will be, how will this business be unraveled? How will it be sold? How will you or your family in the event of, say, a death, get the value of your business? Or are you going to be in business with your now deceased partner's spouse? Uh, and then are we going to argue about how the business is valued? And what is it really worth? And who are we going to sell it to? And uh, how are we going to calculate the, the, the value of the business? And so, because that business interest probably represents a big part of the other partner's net worth and the financial security of their spouse. And you're essentially trying to head off in advance conflicts, fights, uh, disagreements, legal squabbles, 
uh, pain, right? I mean, imagine if it's a death and, and you now you're fighting with your partner's spouse instead of both of you grieving and, and dealing with the, you know, this, this huge change in status. And so valuing the business, having a business valuation. And then for a lot of people, um, the, the funding of that, right? We call it an mm-hmm. unfunded, the, the agreement, by the way, for those of you who are listening, it's called a buy-sell agreement, very simply named. And it just lays out the terms and conditions under which a business would be bought or sold and what are the triggering events and what's the valuation method and all that. But in many cases, neither party, meaning partner A, partner B, or their family has sufficient resources to buy out the other person, right? So let's say the business is worth $7 million. Well, you see eight, so I can divide it. It's worth $8 million. It's $4 million on either side. Well, does the family have $4 million to buy out the partnership interest? No. So that's where they would use something like life insurance to create that immediate estate. And the agreement would actually spell out the purchase and maintenance of those policies to then in turn have the liquidity to buy the business interest. So, um, but what I, but that's that's kind of the mechanics of the buy sell, mm-hmm. if you will. Tied into that is then getting the advice and the guidance to run the business in a systematic way, such that you're at the high end of your multiple all the time, which is good for you. Whether you're just trying to pull income and profit out of the business, or if at some point you're going to sell the business, that'll be the most valuable business to sell. I just recently had a client in a particular industry where there was a range of these sales multiples and he ended up at the uh, high end of the range and it literally added tens of millions of dollars to his ultimate sales price. Um, And yet other people in the exact same industry, possibly with more revenue, just raw revenue, don't sell for as much because the businesses are not as well run with this idea that eventually I may sell it. You make a good point on, on valuations. Um, and this, I, I actually had this thought early in on my practice is um, I may not want to sell, you know, now even 20 years, but I need to build this business as if right. I'm going to sell. And, and I think um, I read this book. It was called, um, was it called built to sell? Built to the, sell. Is one built of the to books, sell. Yeah. yeah the John Warlow. And uh, for those of you who haven't read it, it's, you know, if you're in a service-based business, how do you, how do you prep your company? Uh, so it is, it is sellable because I think for a lot of, um, service-based industries like you and I we're you know, at least when we first started up, we're, you know, we're the, we're the engine of the company. Right. And if, if we're, if, if we're gone, the viability kind of goes out the window, but you can kind of set yourself up where if you kind of follow these particular rules and paths and things like that, then um, you can you can create your company where, you know, if you're gone one month, two months, forever, it'll kind of keep running, um, uh, uh, keep running while you're not there, which would in turn, you know, increase, increase your valuation. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I'm working with a client in California where they've run the business for 30 something years and the wife's still, you know, running the payroll and the, the husband been still kind of supervising the workers and it's it's harder for them to leave and just be gone it's harder for them to transfer the business to the next generation and yeah i mean first of all the title of that book is so perfect i mean in three words it captures the entire idea what we're talking about here which Mm is building the business to sell the business even if you never sell the business because you may transfer the business to your kids Mm -hmm. uh, but then you 
are going to want an income from that business, right? Because you're probably not going to sell it to them. You're going to transfer ownership. But you're like, hey, I, I want a paycheck even after I transfer this highly valuable asset. And you better be running this ship really, really well, according to the principles I set up. Although um, there's a book, uh, Jonathan, what is it called? Uh, Goldsmith. Uh, it's a Disruptive Successor mm -hmm. is another book where he talks about this other issue, which is, and you and I both know the stats, very few businesses survive even the next one generation let alone two or three generations. It's very rare. Um, and he addresses this issue of the, the disruptive successor, which is don't fix what isn't broken, uh, but what is broken, how do you do it without, you know, stepping on mom and dad's toes and how do you, you know, right. and when do you start making that transfer and everything? So this, I, I find this to be a fascinating uh, topic because when you get into the issue of transferring a business to the next generation, um, that's fraught with all kinds of, you know, is, is junior as sharp as, as mom and dad? Right. And what happens if junior gets divorced? What happens if junior gets sued? So, you know, if mom and dad are expecting, we're going to get paid $20,000 a month from the sale of the business and junior has a gambling problem or, a, you know, a divorce yeah. or something. And all of a sudden the, the business is attached. Uh, now what happens to mom and dad's retirement financial security? So when we talk about sneaky, that's a good example of sneaky. It's just not something you would think about, right? But but if you don't plan for, could really come along and 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 destroy probably two levels of the family, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mom and dad and the successors. And, and there's so much to this. It's such a uh, you know kind of a fascinating topic. But I think valuing your business and running your business to extract its mass, maximum value, so you can be on a vacation a, a quarter, you know, four mm -hmm. four vacations a year. Uh, maybe for a week and then, you know, two, two week vacations. So if you're gone for eight weeks, <clears throat> is the business self-managed, self-led? Are the employees self-motivated, self-researching, self-problem solving? Are the customers or clients getting the same level of experience uh, consistently across all divisions, that kind of thing. And it's just the kind of thing that I think a lot of people don't, don't address. And, and from a financial planning standpoint, the reason it's so uh, sort of painful for me to watch and see is that that whole idea can translate to literally in a few examples, millions or tens of millions of dollars of either gained or lost financial security. So, you know, you're going to work the same 30 years. Do you pull out $50 million out of this business or 10? Right, and right, so right. I think a $40 million difference is worth talking about. Sure. Thank you.